I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, building the operating system behind a better future in healthcare is the mission of my guest today. Melissa Morris is the CEO and co-founder of Lantern, which aims to fix what she describes as the broken system of NHS staffing. Named by business leader as one of the UK's top female tech leaders and one of its top health tech innovators, this is the story of a founder with a mission to put the jewel back into the UK's NHS crown. Melissa, welcome to Changemakers. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Oh, I mean, what an interesting business and an interesting story. I'm looking forward to discussing it with you. But I guess let's frame Lantern to start with in terms of what it does and the problem you're trying to solve by that. Yeah, so it's an end-to-end workforce management platform that essentially helps organisations to schedule their staff. So, for example, with the vaccination programme that was rolled out recently, we supported more than 200 organisations to better schedule their staff into shifts. But then why it's sort of very different to, I guess, a normal scheduling tool is that we also mobilize these hyper-local networks of clinicians around organizations so that if you've got a gap in your schedule, if you are short-staffed, which obviously happens a lot in the NHS, we can rapidly fill that with somebody who is vetted and local uh, who can fill the shift at the last minute if you need. No, so, I, I guess just if I can come in there, because I, I guess if, you, if you're if you in the world of logistics and you're in the world of planning and you're in the world of actually using Lantern, you'll get why that matters. But if somebody Somebody's listening to this and, and then and their main experience of the NHS is well can I get a doctor's appointment or can I go to hospital what why does that matter to them so it's more around the uh, the people who run the healthcare organizations so if you run a healthcare organization you need to make sure you've got somebody working on a shift to see your patients at any one time um, not only is it like a legal requirement to have to be adequately staffed but it's also just a you know general patient safety requirement and so if you don't have enough staff you know you end up having to spend a lot of money on recruitment agencies and a lot of money on people to try and find clinicians to fill a shift. So essentially, Lantern not only helps you schedule your full-time staff into shifts, but if you're short-staffed, we'll find you somebody local that can fill the shift. So you never need to worry about being short-staffed or even spending too much money on fully staffing your shift. You've described it as a broken system and completely broken. I've seen two phrases that you've used for that. A lot of people instinctively get that. They, you know, they, they worry that the NHS is, is held together under extreme and unreasonable stress for its doctors and professional teams and, and indeed everybody that works within the NHS. Bring that to life for us, Melissa, in terms of, I guess, when you look at the day-to-day, I know your brother is a doctor. I know that, you know, we We've spoken about always having to work beyond. What does Lantern do that puts that broken system right? So I guess if you sort of think about it from a day to day, so I'll talk about my, bro- my brother, for example, he gets bombarded with text messages, emails, phone calls from hospitals, from recruitment agencies, asking him to work shifts that he just can't do. So he then ends up, you know, not being able to, you know, he can't open and read all of those emails about shifts and he ends up missing shifts that he could do. And so he then goes into the hospital and feels really good guilty that they had to bring an agency doctor into the hospital that day because he didn't get a proper notification about that that shift or nobody let him know about it. So I guess that's like one example. Another example is he doesn't get paid on time. So there's been times where I've had to lend him money, even though he, you know, he's not terribly paid. I've had to lend him money because he hasn't been paid for three months for shifts they worked. You know, he just says it's just an insult to his profession when he's worked so hard and he's got such a strong vocation that they can't even get their act together 
and pay them on time. Mm. So from a sort of micro level, this is the experience day to day of clinicians, you know, and quite frequently people have to work over and above what they are contracted to do over and above what's even legal because there's nobody to fill the shift. So. And, and that's the micro view. The macro goal, of course, is systemic change to an organization which is the world's fifth largest employer. How easy is it for a tech disruptor and innovator to actually affect change with an, an enormous organization? It's extremely difficult. You have to be really creative in how you think about how you're going to do it, because trying to do it top down just doesn't work. It's so, so bureaucratic. And a lot of people think that the NHS is just one organization. In fact, it's not. It's thousands and thousands of organizations that all have independent decision-making authority and sort of wrapped around with layers and layers of red tape. And so we have been doing this for almost 10 years. And, you know, whilst from the outside people think, oh, you've done so well, you know, it's still extremely frustrating when you sort of see companies that are in other industries that have grown mm. much, much faster because they just don't have to contend with the same level of bureaucracy that people in the NHS do. So you have to be extremely passionate about the industry if you want Passionate about the industry. We'll get on to that passion. But I'm, I'm wondering, you know, before the passion, let's talk about the pandemic. Because, I mean, a lot of people say that, that you know, the pandemic has changed things. You know, it's changed the way business works. But it also feels like with, with healthcare is that a lot of things became possible because of the extreme stress of the situation where a lot of the kind of the previous ways of doing things were completely disrupted because of necessity being the mother of invention. I mean, is that just a good yarn or is that actually true in terms of a more nimble, agile health service that, that's more responsive and able to deal with this sort of thing? Well, it's true and it's false. So it's true insofar as decisions were made extremely, extremely quickly. Contracts were awarded to, you know, innovators and other people who could support with the effort at the time. And people were feeling extremely optimistic and empowered by how quickly the NHS could move. And people sort of looked and thought, you know, wow, we can do this. You know, it's amazing. Like, look at everything that's been achieved. However, then there were all these scandals, you know, particularly the health secretary was in in a number of them where contracts were awarded to people who had not tended in the normal course of business for contracts and now people are extremely scared of that kind of press and so mm -hmm. it's kind of been a bit of a sort of elastic band that had you know that stretched and stretched and stretched and now it's sort of come back to where it was a bit before because people are extremely nervous about having that kind of exposure um, you know within the system so it's not as I think that that sort of trope of, oh, wow, look how fast everything can move. And, and, you know, because of the pandemic, I think is a bit of an old one and things have gone a little bit back to where they mm. were before. I mean, we'll come, you know, we'll come back to the to the future. But I mean, let, let's let's go. Let's go to the past, because, you know, when when you put your story together with the obvious aside of, of a brother in healthcare is that you could see a number of pathways that your career might have gone on, Melissa, and, and health is not necessarily the one you would have reached. You know, you, you started in the city, in banking, you worked with McKinsey. You know, if, if I was being told that I was going to interview one of the UK's success, successful fund managers or investment managers or, or, or city grandees, Melissa, I think that, that'd be the interview I'd, I'd be preparing myself for. But instead, what we have is a health tech entrepreneur. So in terms of kind of what gets us there, what do we need to understand about your past story to sort of understand your present? So I started my career as an yeah, investment banker, then went to McKinsey because I was more interested in strategy and sort of big 
strategic problems. I originally started doing projects in private equity and in finance. And then actually at the time, McKinsey had a lot of NHS work going on and a lot of people were being deployed into these NHS projects. And I was Mm. asked if I would go on and do one of these NHS projects. And originally I kind of thought, oh, nothing ever changes in the NHS. I'm not really sure if this is for me. And then I started this project, which was in, uh, in Essex, Supporting the region with to improve GP access, so to improve essentially uh, the way that patients can access primary care and GP appointments. And as soon as I got onto the project, I think also the people I was working with were wonderful, in- incredibly passionate, and smart people. But also, I felt like this idea that nothing ever changes in healthcare is, is actually not right. There are so many pockets of innovation and improvement mm. across the system, and it was really wonderful, I suppose, to be working with people people that genuinely wanted help and were extremely willing to take on board your advice and your opinions and your thoughts, which actually just doesn't really happen as much in other sectors. And so the other piece, I suppose, was that I just realized how complicated the NHS was and how much there was to learn about it. You know, it's extremely convoluted and uh, there's so much going on that that also really stimulated my mind, I guess. And after that project, pledged my allegiance to the NHS and decided that I was only going to work uh, on NHS projects. But I mean, I suppose just trying to understand the kind of the thought process on that. I mean, you've got a growing reputation, I'm guessing, in, in your work, a flight path with a big global consulting firm. And then you have this kind of eureka moment of you see an opportunity, but lots of people see opportunities, but they don't take them. What drove you to think, right, I'm going to go from working for someone to actually creating an organization and a business. And how risky did you feel that decision was at the time? Yeah, it's actually a really good question. So at the time, I had nothing to lose. I was at McKinsey and it uh, it was 2008, I think. During that time, McKinsey had this model where if you were an analyst, you leave and then you go back to McKinsey. So you leave and you might do an MBA or you might go and work for somebody in industry or one of McKinsey's clients. And then the idea is that two years later, you come back and you've got a sort of real world experience that you can then apply back to McKinsey. At the time, a lot of people who were in my class at McKinsey, we all went off and decided to start businesses because it was during the financial crisis and the jobs that we could have gone to do were just not that interesting. So a lot of people just left and started companies with the view that if it fails we could just go back to McKinsey in two years. So it was this amazing kind of sand pit, I suppose, where we could go off and take a what people would normally perceive as a huge risk. Right, but, so, you di- so you discount the risk. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So, um, and actually, pretty much everybody that went off to start companies are all extremely successful now. I mean, like 10 times more successful than I am. And I've now got this amazing peer set of people who've gone off and started really incredible companies in different industries. So I get why your co-founder, Dr. Ashani Patel might might be drawn to a business like this because she's a GP herself. With you, my, my sense from our discussions has been that there is something about the love of complexity and problem solving that might be a clue as to why we find you with Lantern. Yes, I also think, so my parents were entrepreneurs as well. And I suppose it was always, I was always surrounded by that kind of entrepreneurial spirit and creating something from nothing. And whilst I had sort of grown up around it. I always said to myself, I was not going to be an entrepreneur. It just didn't really appeal to me. And then I guess over time, as I got older, I realized that actually I really 
did love creating something from nothing and, and I really do love solving problems. Why, why did you think it didn't appeal to you at the time? I, I think I just saw my parents really struggle with their company. I mean, it wasn't a technology business. It was a food distribution business. It was an incredible amount of work that went into it for, you know, not the biggest return. And I sort of just saw that and thought, wow, that's really not for me. You know, there's just so much that goes into something like that. And and to get, you don't really get too much out of it. And so I just kind of thought it wasn't for me. And then I guess the advent of technology, you know, seeing what, how scalable you could make your company by, you know, adopting technology and, and making that your part of your DNA, that also changed my mind quite a bit and I also I guess discounted originally the the level of fulfillment that you get when you when you really are creating something from Mm. scratch and so you know being able to experience that and doing it you know I I kind of never looked back after right has this been a sort of long-term journey do you think in terms of finding where you feel you fit best in terms of your professional journey I mean is this because you know obviously what what you can see you've only got to jump on your LinkedIn profile to see that actually there have been a number of steps that that get us to today and I'm trying to get a sense of actually is this the story of an impatient traveler or is this or is this the story of someone that's actually been trying to find what it is they want to do I think it's also a story of the business cycle, because if you think about, you know, the careers of people my age, a lot of people have done the same career as me, you know, starting off in finance mm-hmm. and then going and moving into technology. And, you know, some people are sort of moving into technology and, and startups a bit later, but there just weren't any startups at the beginning, you know, there just mm. weren't. And they only really started becoming popular around sort of 2012, 2013. And so I think a lot of it is also just about the trends in the market and then where the opportunities are but of course you know there's always trial and error and figuring out what you want and I think you're never going to really learn what's good for you until you know what isn't and so therefore you know there's, there's always trial and error and I think you've got to be that kind of person to try things and be prepared to fail and be prepared to to, to change tack if you want to be an entrepreneur you know even mm. in starting Lantern the business has completely changed from when we first started it. Well, so so you mentioned two very interesting years, which which coincide with when you founded the business, 2012 and 2013, which were also extremely feel-good years when it came to startup formation, when it came to the establishment of, I guess, the zeitgeist, you know, the sort of the bursting out of Old Street into Tech City and Tech Nation. And that, I guess, may well have provided quite an exciting backdrop for an entrepreneur setting up a health tech business in 2012 to 13. How, how does it feel today? I mean, do, do you feel that, that that is still, is it still fertile territory, do you think, in terms of the ability to create really innovative businesses like Lantern? Yes, and I think that the ecosystem is just so much better developed now than it was when I first started. There are so many different avenues to attract capital now, extremely obviously well-developed VC market but also there are just many many other avenues that you can pursue to to attract capital to fund your company and so and I also think you know the peer set there are just so many more people you know in that in that peer set I'm now in an entrepreneurial group of people which has about 500 entrepreneurs in it and I remember when I first started my company I was hanging around with five Mm. or six entrepreneurs you know and 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 I think the knowledge base is better developed you know there's so much you can look up there's amazing conferences there's just an amazing set of advisors who've been there and done it and so I, I really think that um you know now is a, is a much better time to ensure that your company will be successful but, but I was reading something the other day about the difference between plumbers and poets in business right so plumbing is that all these things are right things you're talking about the the ecosystem the infrastructure the the, the sort of the the ability 
ability to sort of access funding. But the poetry, I guess, is also the high notes of ambition and it speaks to the future. When you think about the years that you were establishing your business, that a lot of stock was put into the idea that Britain could be a home of, of world beaters and that actually that that kind of real aspirational tone was was a big part of, I guess, what inspired a lot of people to turn their backs on established careers and give it a go and, and have a go. I'm interested as well, not only in terms of, I guess, the head and the heart. I suppose the head is, well, these are the things that have been done to make it better. The heart, I think, speaks to the aspiration that this could be a world-class place to build a business that has got huge aspiration. I mean, give us a sense of that side of it in terms of the attitude part for growing a business in the UK? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's changed quite a bit after Brexit because I think previously the UK was a really great place to start a company because it's a, obviously, you know, for, for many reasons like the, the, the ecosystem and the well-developed legal structure, but also because it's a good jumping off point to expand across the rest of Europe. Now that's obviously changed an awful lot. And so I think the sentiment is among particularly among entrepreneurs people are still very concerned about that and what that means i think people are still a bit uncertain about what it means because it's you know we haven't had too long um, under this environment but i think that yeah I, I think it has changed slightly i think the level of optimism has reduced because of that and only time will tell you know what that really means i think though you know there are still some extremely successful technology businesses in this country and a lot of the founders of those companies have either you know the ones particularly who've sold or or, or left to go and do something else and now reinvesting into the ecosystem and giving their advice and capital into new you know, startups who, you know, people who are just graduating or, or people who are just starting out. And so I think that, you know, sort of that, that cycle is really encouraging and really exciting to see because I think it's like when you sort of see that, you know, recycle of capital, I think that's when you know that it, it, it is a quite a sustainable place to essentially harbour and foster technology. I was reading a report on a keynote speech you gave where you said your mantra in business is only the paranoid survive. Tell us about that. <laughs> I said stolen from Andy Grove, so I can't pretend that it's my own phrase. But yeah, I think you you really got to keep your wits about you at all times, you know, whether it's competition or whether it's thinking about, you know, what's going to happen in, in the market. I think you've got to always almost plan and assume for the worst <laughs> and then kind of hope and pray for the best. Uh, because I think that one of the pitfalls of entrepreneurial spirit is that you can end up being too optimistic and being too optimistic means that you can be quite miscalculating when mm. you make decisions and so therefore yeah I, I it's something that I really do live and breathe by <laughs> mm. is that based on what you've learned or do you think how you are in terms of your outlook I mean do you start in the morning with a you know from the perspective of being a a very positive person that might end the day feeling oh well I was let down there or do you start the day from the other way around actually thinking well I need to be careful here and actually I feel better at the end of the day because of what happened because I was prepared. So I am a very positive person but I would say that when I make decisions or I try to calculate the risk I try to be extremely realistic and try to really think about you know what really could knock us off our feet. I think you know also startups are really you know they're not resilient organizations you you know, it's, if somebody leaves your organization, the chances are you don't have somebody to kind of backfill that person. Mm. You, you Fragility, just, yeah. You 
you just don't have that bench strength you know like most startups are not profitable for example so you rely on being able to raise capital and there's just so much that could really you know end your company so you've got to really treat it as if it you know it really does need a lot of protection and so that's I guess and it's because I didn't I wasn't born that way I think it's just because I've experienced just a lot of hardship and difficulty when when it comes to building this business or I sort of learned the hard way you know around kind of what being too optimistic can do Mm, you're obviously at, at an interesting juncture, you know, a 10th anniversary on, on the horizon. And, you know, I, I, I guess I'd, I'd be interested in your view about what's changed in the in the wider sense in terms of healthcare in 2022 versus 2012, in terms of have we made the most of the last decade, do you think, in terms of the innovations required? Should we feel that we are in a good place or, or have we missed have we missed big opportunities? That's a very good question. I, I still think healthcare is the last frontier, like the last industry that's going to be truly disrupted. It still hasn't been completely disrupted yet. You know, there are still so many outdated processes and old-fashioned technologies that you know don't even can't even be used on mobile in operation across the NHS and I see that firsthand and you know we're working in the US now and it's the same thing over there you know like people assume that the United States is much more innovative in healthcare than in the UK it's, it's just not but I do think that now particularly because the venture capital ecosystem has developed so much in the last 10 years and actually post the pandemic there's a lot of money going into healthcare now like you know you're now seeing healthcare companies raise 100 plus million in venture capital which you just didn't see before and I think that that's really encouraging because that's kind of the level of capital that needs to be deployed to mm. really transform this industry. And, and, and if I ask you the question about the next 10 years rather than the past 10 years what excites you about the shape of things to come what might be? I'm excited about I think that you know excited about the amount of capital that's going into the sector because you can't you really can't disrupt this sector without an awful lot of capital and that really helps you shortcut the time it takes to to penetrate so I'm really excited about that I'm also excited about there are a lot of modernizers I suppose being attracted into the healthcare system who are now rising the ranks whether it's within the NHS or within you know other healthcare systems who you know maybe sort of come in like at a junior level and now are kind of you know moving moving up into more senior decision making positions and I'm really excited by that and I think that that's going to really support the change that's needed. Do you think there is something also in the fact that you know in, in 2012 we could never have foreseen that we would go through well actually some did foresee that we would go through a pandemic you know there's a very good Bill Gates presentation saying precisely that but 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 I don't think it was in the zeitgeist that actually we would be facing anything like we we faced um, now and of course what it's done in terms of public consciousness is that it's driven the issue of health insecurity into public discourse you know we've we've had to face issues to do with health and mortality that that potentially people might have realistically expected the whole of their lives to have gone by without ever experiencing what I'm wondering is that does that create the golden age for this last frontier because actually people don't want to be back in that position again or is it the case that you know the investment cycle will have a very short memory and move off on to things that might have quicker returns and easier easier roadmaps that's a really good question. I guess only time will really tell, um, you know, what what really will happen there. I do think, though, that a lot of the people that are putting money into the sector understand that it's 
you know, it's patient capital that is needed mm-hmm. um, and not um, the industry for quick returns. Um, so I, I think that's that's always been a sort of common understanding. I also think that the returns will end up becoming quicker as people start to adopt more and more technology and as, you know, technology, you know, technology that's now ubiquitous in other sectors is now starting to penetrate into healthcare. You know, it used to be that it would the, the technology that was sort of originally built to support healthcare took an awful lot of time to to construct and build and implement. Whereas now, because the advent of consumer tech that's just so much faster to adopt, and you know, particularly the user experience improvements that we've seen in technology, they're now filtering into healthcare, and it's making it a lot faster to actually penetrate in. And so therefore, I think that really will speed up, you know, some of the, the returns that are available to, to investors. Now, I mean, I'm, I'm just sort of thinking as, as as you're speaking is that, you know, you, you interview or I get to speak with a lot of health tech entrepreneurs that are, you know, over the last sort of five or 10 years, I've talked about things like the 100 year life and about cures to cancer and so many things that feel a million miles away from the wards and front lines of the NHS um, of today. But I suppose what we're really talking about is the ability of um, of, of the match, I guess, in terms of some 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 sort of optimism and hope for where, where the NHS might take us. I mean, it's been a fascinating chat, Melissa. I mean, one sort of co-traveller on this interview, though, of course, has been your dog. And I think, you know, for, for listeners that are, are wondering, do we have a second guest? Who, who, is, who, is, who has been our sort of fellow, fellow sort of traveller today? Called Wanda. She's a cavapoo. She's uh, one year old, and she's yeah, she's a, a little bit nuts. Well, listen, I, I think Wanda's a good a good name actually, because I think a wander through your your career, Melissa, has been brilliant. Thanks so much for joining us on Changemakers. Thank you so much for having me. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaigns firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack, and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works, and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating? 